to say that this past week has been an insane week would be maybe understating it. It's been a week that has certainly touched all of our deepest fears about one another, about the world that we live in, on either side, about any hope of what this all means when we seem to be, there seems to be no safe place or safe way of being together. But you know, the scripture always points towards hope because there is no final story except God's final story. The story this past week is not the end story. It may be the beginning story of something different. A lot of it will depend on how we react to it. A lot of it will depend on whether we resign ourselves to it, whether we allow it to create hatred and fear and all of those other things that divide us, or whether we hang on to it and see where we can weave God's story in the midst of it. That's what happened with uh, our scripture story today with Jacob. It was a time of great chaos, a time of deception, and a time of fear. And Jacob had a choice. And let's go to the story and see what choice he made. You know, Jacob is, is one of my very favorite characters in all of Scripture. And I think probably one of it is because he's so flawed. And so I see myself so much in him. He's not somebody that's so removed from uh, the possibility, the realm of possibility of who I am or who I will be or what God sees in me that, it would, that I can't relate to him. But he's also one of the most intriguing uh, people in Scripture because we know more about him virtually than almost anybody else in all of Scripture. We, there are more chapters of Genesis that are dedicated to uh, Jacob and his story than any other patriarch in all of, the, um, all of the Old Testament. He's the only person in the Bible whom we see as a very, very young child, as a, a young man, as a mature husband, as a father, as a grandfather, as an old man contemplating death, we see him throughout his whole life. And we see him, this person of Jacob, interacting with his brother, his wives, his brother-in-law, his father-in-law. We see him interacting with his children, his grandchildren. We see him interacting with the God of his ancestors. There is a popular theory in theological circles, and I love this because I love for the gates to be opened wide to ways of thinking about these people that we encounter in Scripture. Because I think that when we engage them in different ways, it, it brings them closer. It, it makes it less accessible to us to say, that was then, this is now. So one of the uh, uh, ideas that's going around in theological circles today is that Jacob's story is really the story of the of the moral evolution of all of us, of humankind. And, and what fascinates us about this story is that the remarkable uh, way that in which he grows, in which we see him grow from being trickster 
which is what his, his name means, as Becca alluded to, trickster or deceiver, to being one who works with God. How does that happen? We, uh, this theological uh, idea of this uh, moral evolution uh, says that perhaps the history of his famous dream, you know, Jacob's ladder, where he, he sees a dream and, and the ladder is extending from earth to heaven and he sees angelic beings coming up and down that ladder. And the, the thought is that this could be the distance between Jacob, between all of us as we are, and all that God would hope us to be. That that is the distance. And that his story is the account of a struggle to climb that ladder. A struggle for all of us to ascend from a lower level of behavior to the highest level that God has in mind for us as human beings. To become a more complete person. And, and do this not through discontentation, which is what he often... Uh, uh, well, Jacob is a deal maker. He's that person that's always looking for the deal, and he makes deal after deal after deal. Even right before his transformation, he's trying to make a deal. But all the time, God is working on him, working on that uh, level of behavior as it begins to change. But whether or not you view this story as a literal story about a man and his brother or whether you see it as a larger story of the human condition in relationship with God, it, neither of those views really change what the basic truths are that are running through the story. That's the beauty of Scripture. You can be literal or you can be uh, another way, but it doesn't change the, the truth. is the center nugget of that story. And, and, and the truths are this, that God is not passive. God is not passive, but God is relentless when it comes to a relationship with us. Relentless. That, um, and that we are in desperate need of God. No matter how much we have, no matter how much we accumulate, no matter how smooth life is going, we have a desperation for God. This story tells us that. We also recognize that we study the lives of people who mattered so that we can learn how to make our own lives matter. We study the life of Jesus because Jesus is for us the human potential realized, the way that we have the potential to be operate in the world. We study his life so that we might be everything that God has called us to be. And when we recognize that we, that we live our lives studying those whose lives matter so that our lives can matter, we begin to recognize also, this is a truth that runs through every story, is that the Bible is a source of wisdom and, and the source of, of insight about our relationship with God and what it means to live in the presence of God among us. The Bible has more to say than any self-help book, anything that you could ever look to, to reveal who God is to you, you will not find a better or more comprehensive source than our scriptures. And so we recognize that the story of Jacob
Even a very small slice of that story that we're encountering today in our scripture is a significant story that has much to teach us about our relationship with ourselves and with God. And I want to put into perspective exactly where we're picking up on Jacob's story. Jacob's story extends from Genesis 25 through the very last chapter, Genesis 50. His story extends that far. And we're starting in chapter 33. Chapter 33 is not in the center, further along. It's after, some, it, it's after he's tricked his brother, stolen his brother's birth, birthright, and then he took off with, with his family's uh, animals and all of this. Then he goes and he tricks his father-in-law after his father-in-law tricks him into give, and he ends up with two wives, Rachel and Leah, and then he go, moves on to do some more deals and cuts deals, and he becomes very, very wealthy. And all the time, God has been working on him, working on him, working on him. And finally, God has said to him, you've got to go home and make things right. This is years later. And he's afraid to go home because his brother Esau, he stole everything from his brother. But he has come to the point in his life where he listens to God. So we come to a time right before he has his reunion with his brother. And he has uh, thousands of cattle and sheep and all of this that he has sent ahead of him to kind of grease the relationship wheel so that maybe Esau won't be as angry with him. But he still has his wife and his children and everything, and they're parked across the river. And, um, but during the night, this is where we pick up the scripture from verse 22, chapter 32. During the night, he got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He got them safely across the brook along with all his possessions. But Jacob stayed behind by himself. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man couldn't get the best of Jacob, as they wrestled, he deliberately threw Jacob's hip out of joint. The man said, let me go, it's daybreak. Jacob said, I'm not letting you go till you bless me. And the man said, what is your name? He answered, Jacob. And the man said, but no longer. Your name is no longer Jacob, deceiver and trickster. From now on, it is Israel, God, wrestler. You've wrestled with God, and you've come through. The word of the Lord. Then it continues, because that's the primary part. And he says, and Jacob asked the, the man, what's your name? And the man wouldn't tell him. He says, why do you want to know my name? And then and there he blessed him. Never answered the question. And Jacob named the place Peniel, God's face. Because he said, I saw God face to face and lived to tell the story. And the sun came up as he left Peniel, limping because of a hip. 
This is why Israelites to this day don't eat the hip muscle because Jacob's hip was thrown out of joint. You know, when I worry about the future of the church, as I know that many people do, one of the things that I worry about is that there's not more wrestling in the pulpit. It's not the preacher's own struggle to proclaim the word that I worry about. Believe me, we wrestle with that. There's enough of that going on trying to make sense of it, trying to understand what it is that God would have us understand, to pass that on with integrity and with, uh, with really history behind it, with everything that we can bring to bear. We wrestle with that. But here's what I wrestle with. It's the reduction of the dynamic and earth-shattering living word of God to a tame and codified and stone, non-organic rule of thumb rather than the word of God. It is the illusion that our relationship with God is on our terms with the end result being what we get out of it, that all of our life is about what are we going to get out of God. It's an illusion. That's what worries me. It worries me that some have come to believe that if you're a good person, God will be good to you. And so we're constantly disappointed and our faith is shaken when bad things happen. It's the misconception that if you stay away from bad company and rise above adversity, that you will be rewarded and all will be well. If you have wild dreams in the middle of the night, please keep it to yourself or don't eat pizza after 9 o'clock. That wild dreams have nothing to do with us being people who believe in this God, this mystery. Wild dreams have no place in that. Risk-taking, no, no. (laughs) That worries me. This may not be ever what's preached, but sometimes it's what's heard. It's it's only because humankind has such a high need to control the chaos of life on earth. And as a week that seems filled with chaos, it will seem odd that I should talk about chaos in the manner in which I'm going to talk about it today. But I want you to know that the chaos, the confusion... The evil intent that was part of this past week has nothing to do with the holy chaos that I present to you today. You don't hear much about God causing chaos, holy chaos, or even having a role in it. On the contrary, that's because we've whittled God down to thinking that God's job is to make everything stop, everything that feels uncomfortable, everything that smacks of, of, of things that we aren't certain about, things that we aren't in control of. We feel discomfited. We feel restless when that happens, and we think what we need is a status quo. We need it all to be smooth. God is supposed to restore it and help everyone, all of us feel comfortable again because after all, isn't the end game our comfort? Isn't that how you know when God is present, when the danger has been avoided, when your heart stops pounding fast and you can breathe normally again? 
you know that God is there. And, and when you are not afraid anymore and you can feel your strength coming back, like blood rushing to that numb part of yourself that was asleep, it's a very appealing idea that all those are signals of God. But unfortunately, the Bible doesn't support it. It's that richly troubling book. Much of God's best work takes place in total divine chaos. With people half scared out of their wits, there's Elijah trembling under the broom tree, pleading with God to take his life. Oh God, I can't do this anymore. I, I thought I was doing everything right and then now Jezebel is still after me. She's going to kill me. Just go ahead and kill me now. Or it's Mary listening to an angel's ambitious plans for plunging her into a scandal. Or it's frightened disciples that are gathered in a room in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit slams open the door and comes sweeping into that place, blowing the roof off with holy fire. And flames erupt and people erupt and it's chaos and confusion to the point that everybody else who's looking on says, all these people are drunk. Paul laying flat on his belly on a road in Damascus with all his lights put out. Perhaps because we know how these stories turn out, we overlook the wrestling. We overlook that in between, what that must have been like, what that must have felt like. The stark terror of being jumped on by an unknown assailant, the collapse of the known world, the reduction of everything one has been and done to this scorched moment of fighting for one's life. That's not what we signed up for, is it? What we signed up for is, is a tame God who will meet our needs. We signed up to be protected. We signed up for prosperity. We signed up for a God who will operate within the domestic boundaries that we've set for ourselves without really doing anything to frighten us unnecessarily. Chosen. We want to be saved. The fact of the matter is that we are and we have. And the chaos is still, the divine chaos is still to be a part of us, to shake us up, to get us moving. Only gently, please, we say, by gradual so that we don't even notice that it's changing. I don't want any of this all of a sudden transformation stuff. Yes, this, is, this suits me and I can handle this little bite. Just show me the way. I think it's a reasonable longing. It's not something, as I preach it, it's not something that, that I have mastered is being wide open to this holy chaos. I only know that I've encountered it many times. And sometimes I've been up for it, and sometimes I haven't, and every time I haven't, I feel I've missed an opportunity. Every time. No one in their right mind asked to be attacked or frightened or wounded spiritually. None of us want to be prodded and pushed and compelled. You know, when many people, when they're growing up, they have this little refrain in their head, God, ask of me anything except don't, make, don't send me to Africa. Don't make me leave my everything that I know. Don't make me give this up. Don't do this. We put these parameters 
on what we want God to do because in essence, we don't trust God with this suffering part. We really don't. If you do that, God, I'll suffer and you won't be there. That's something to think about. Sometimes, sometimes in those moments, in that divine chaos, the presence and blessing of God appears. Sometimes we have to look very hard and we have to hang on to that holy chaos until that blessing is ours. Sometimes it comes in the middle of the night and it's in the desperate wrestling. Who would have thought it that the answer is, comes to all your prayers? It's been 20 years since Jacob was at home. Or to be more accurate, it's been 20 years since he poached his brother's birthright and tricked a blessing out of his blind father. How low can you get? He conspired with his mother against his father and he succeeded in tearing the entire family apart. And 20 years later, he's headed into the wilderness north of Beersheba. And he dreamed his famous ladder in heaven dream and heard a promise made to him from God. I think proving once and for all that God is not a moralist. This was the unevolved Jacob that God made this promise to. Jacob is a liar and a cheat and still he gets the dream. His own holy vision of the traffic between heaven and earth. And that should have changed him, but it didn't. It didn't change him. And now it's time to go home. And little by little, he's seeing things differently. God says, return to the land of your ancestors and to your kindred. Go back, go home, see your brother. The Lord said to Jacob, and then the Lord says this, and I will be with you. Go ahead, do what you're afraid of, and I'll be with you. So Jacob made ready to go. Now, here's the chaos. This is the chaos. Here's the holy chaos. God offers Jacob the opportunity. Are you ready? Are you ready to enter into this transformation? Do you trust me with this moment of no matter what the outcome is, can you trust me to make this journey? And Jacob says yes. By saying yes, it is the beginning of his most deep transformation. He's humble in what he asks for from God. Deliver me, please, from the hand of my brother. That was all he asked for his own life and the life of his family. He had changed, but he couldn't imagine that Esau had changed. He couldn't imagine that Esau could have ever forgiven him and feared that his brother had robbed not once but twice. But he still was going to go because God asked him to go. In a last effort to repay the debt and grease his own homecoming, as I said, he sent all the animals and everything ahead of him, slaves and servants and flocks, camels and donkeys, and they moved across the countryside like a, a, a living shadow of clouds moving towards Esau's land. And then Jacob settles in for the night with, at a camp, but he's so restless. And a powerful restlessness and an intuitive moment comes to him where he feels like he has, to be, he has to make a step alone. 
So he takes his wife and his possessions and he crosses, he takes his wives and his possessions and he crosses this Jabbok brook. He places them on the other side. He goes back and he settles in for the night. No sooner had he settled in than he's attacked by what, what the Bible says, an ish. An ish is the Hebrew word for man. He later describes it as God. This God-man attacks him. No sooner had he caught his breath than the ish was on his back. And, and whoever he is, ish or Yahweh, he's strong. Now, mind you, Jacob is a very strong man. He's lifted a stone pillar at Bethel. He hauled another solid slab of rock off the well at Haran. He is a big man himself, but in this well-muscled ish, he has encountered his rival. There's no talking at first, no talking at all. All you can hear in that wrestling is the grunts and the slap of flesh against flesh, and the dirt is flying. It's an incredible thing as they grapple together. Both of them sucking air between the low grunts. And Jacob doesn't have a clue what's going on. And it's so dark. They can't even see each other. They might as well be wrestling in some underground chamber for all they can see. And then there's an arm snaking around the neck with no warning and a knee planted in the, in the back. They fight by feel, not by sight. And then the sky begins to lighten. They've been wrestling all night. And then fear gives the stranger new strength. He drops his weight and, on Jacob and cracks Jacob's hip, puts it out of joint. And still Jacob will not let go. The stranger speaks. Physical strength has failed to decide this contest. So it's time to try words. And he says, let me go, he says to Jacob, for the day is breaking. But Jacob is very unsympathetic at this point. He has, after all, a hip out of joint. He's got a hold of someone that attacked him, and he's not going to let go. And this person, this person smells of heaven, and he doesn't want to let go. And so Jacob, doing what Jacob does best, tries to make a deal. He says, I will not let you go, he says, unless you bless me. That's his deal. Bless me, and I'll let you go. Instead of answering the question, the stranger says, What is your name? And as they are locked together in each other's arms of combat, you have to listen very carefully. Because when Jacob deceived his blind father, the father said, Who is this? And Jacob said, It's Esau. And in this moment, you hear the echo of that question, Who is this? And in this moment, Jacob is transformed because he says, I am Jacob. And the name falls away like a second skin, and he is no longer Jacob. He is given a new name. He is Israel, the God wrestler. The stranger won't return the favor. He keeps his name to himself, but he delivers his blessing. Not because Jacob asked, but because that was the intention. 
Should this transformation take place? And the night-long embrace is over. Now, Jacob limps toward the reunion with Esau. And I want you to think for a moment, if you've heard the echo of this story in another place, Esau is far away, and Jacob sees him with 400 men. And in that moment, Jacob gets his wives and children and divides them up and puts them behind him because he fears his brother, who he has a right to fear, and the 400 men that are lined up with him. And he limps slowly, after wrestling all night, limps slowly, determined to take whatever punishment his brother hands out to him. He walks towards him, and no sooner does he begin to see clearly his brother, his brother breaks out in running towards him and throws himself into his arms, throws his hands around his brother's neck and kisses his neck. Does that sound familiar? That story of redemption that we see play out again in the story that Jesus, who was a rabbi, who knew these stories so well, uses to tell us about the prodigal son, about this God whose nature is grace since the beginning of time. God had simply overlooked all of Jacob's sin, all of his stumbling, all of his deception, and he said, I see in you a potential. I see in you, and I will give you everything necessary for your life. Within the wounded and blessed relationship, Jacob saw the face of God, and he lived to tell the truth. And what is comfort and safety compared to that? Of course, that's all just talk until you have a stranger on your back, smelling of heaven and pummeling you for all it's worth. And maybe we do that right now because we have these images in our head of men being killed, men who were at the wrong place at the wrong time, and men who put themselves in that place. We have all these images in our head, and could we replace that image? Could we replace that image that causes us fear and hate, that causes us to be bitter and ruthless? Could we replace that image that God has come to us again and again and again with and say, there is hope, run towards that one, Throw your arms around their neck. Kiss them. Love them. That may seem unrealistic. But what is the other answer? What is the alternative? There is no other way but the way that God has given us. And when it happens, don't let anyone tell you that something is wrong when you feel like forgiving when you feel that wrestling in yourself. Don't let anyone convince you of that. If it were really God, it wouldn't be scary. And it certainly wouldn't hurt. Hang on with everything that is in you, even if it hurts. Insist on a blessing to go with your wound. And don't let go until you've got that blessing. Then thank God for your life, limp and all. 
as you make your way home. The word, the word and message of God. 